0: Good morning. Uh, my name is Taylor Christmas. It's good to be with you guys today. Um, we'll be reading from Matthew 15:1 through20 today, and that can be found on pages 820 and 821 of your Pew Bible. So I'll give you a minute to get there. Matthew 15, verses 1 through 20. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain this parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right. Hey, good morning. Hey, if I haven't met, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors. I think I'm good. Hey, I'm supposed to make an announcement about small groups and Sunday school and men's and women's initiatives, which are all super, super important. Um, for some reason, they feel like out of place right now in this moment. So I'll tell you about them like later next week or benediction or website or email or something. Uh, let me just pray for us and jump into this text. But know this, they're super important. We're not minimizing them. I just feel like to jump into that was going to feel strange for my soul, so let me just, um, it's not your responsibility. It doesn't matter to you at all what, what's happening inside my soul, um, but for my sake, I'm going to skip that announcement. <laughs> now that I've made it awkward, do I, no, I don't go for it. I'm just going to pray. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thanks for um, the way it pierces to our hearts in ways that are maybe surprising and maybe welcomed and maybe that we resist. I just want to bring like a a sorted out, uh, maybe jumbled heart to you this morning on behalf of the body. We've prayed about lots of things. We've sang about lots of things. Um, And thanks that your blood grounds all of our hopes. So even in tragedy and crisis, we can say you're good and you've been coming after us because of what Christ has done. Would you now stir faith in the room in ways that change us, that expose us, that heal us, that call us to yourself. And would you use this text uh, the way that you were challenging that audience and the way that you were um, clarifying for them what is most important? Would you do that for us here this morning? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, this text is pretty complicated and it maybe feels kind of far away when you talk about hand washing and defilement and you've got codes from the first century that not really fitting kind of our current cultural moment and so I just want to acknowledge like the text maybe feels kind of far away but let me kind of bring you into what I think is actually happening I think the text is doing a couple things one is it's a challenge of these religious leaders to Jesus so he's been teaching he's been talking about the kingdom he's been proving without a doubt that he is the Messiah he's the king which means all these leaders have to deal with him so now we're in a section in the book of Matthew where conflict begins to arise because they've built worlds and systems and structures and ways of living and being and doing, that Jesus now comes and threatens. When King Jesus comes into the kingdom of this world, he did say he came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword and to bring upheaval to the way that we were living. At first, it's really offensive, and it's actually is something that we want to resist. Like, who, who is he to say what's important? Who is he to say what we need? Who is he to say what our future should hold? But if he actually is the king, if he's the one who created everything, then what is the first offensive then becomes a welcomed thing because the king comes to actually heal. And this confrontation of kingdoms is to establish his love and the way that he can actually begin to rescue and redeem the world. So it's initially something that confronts and then it welcomes. And we get to look over the shoulder of these religious leaders who are wrestling with the claims of Jesus like you're wrestling with that. And so just kind of go outside, maybe the big speech moments to the quiet places of your heart where God has called you to things and you resist him, where he's told you to forgive somebody and you're struggling with the way the bitterness kind of just feels more natural and normal, what you feel entitled to when it comes to issues of sexual purity. And you feel like, man, I just have to be comforted. I have to be soothed. I'm entitled to something. My world is so chaotic. God's allowed so much pain this moment of soothing is something I deserve when it comes to how you spend your money, how you think about people that are different than you, all, all these different places where God has spoken in and we we hear his voice and then we resist because we've built a framework around our lives that begins to make sense to us. All of us are living in ways that are trying to answer the question: what's wrong with the world and how do I fix it? Like what what would it mean to go about making things right. And so this text would use the words like cleanliness or defilement. If you can just see those labels as things that are like not the way they're supposed to be. Something that's unclean is not the way it's supposed to be. Something that's defiled is not the way it's supposed to be. So, so you may have probably don't use the word defiled very often. Maybe moms, you use it to talk about your, your van after your kids have eaten in it. You're like, oh, they have defiled my van. That, like that same idea, right? As a small little metaphor, think about our world or your relationships or your life. And when you say and see things around you that aren't the way they're supposed to be, we could call them unclean or defiled. Okay, the religious leaders have built a system around how to address that issue. And it was rooted in God's word and commands. And then over time, they have begun to add a whole lot of things to it. So they have these traditions now that they are holding on to that Jesus is coming and is exposing, or is breaking. He's exposing that they're not big enough to fix what's actually wrong with the world. So he comes now and confronts, not the laws of the Old Testament, but the traditions of the elders we see in verse two. And before you get too hard on these people, again, just realize what they're trying to do is what you do every single day. They're trying to make sense of their world. They're trying to think about how to keep themselves safe, how to make themselves right, how to live in ways that are meaningful, how to honor like what's most important. These are the questions that are driving, even though they're misplaced, they're what's driving their burdens and desires. Now, they are actually trying to trap Jesus too. His confrontation is actually now bringing a lot of tension. So there's not like a pure only motive here, but there's something that's rooted in like zeal for making things right. These extra laws that the religious leaders were imposing on themselves and on other people were an attempt again to like, make things clean, to fix what's defiled? Like how do we put boundaries and parameters in place that would keep people safe, that would, would hold back evil, that would make things better, that would help us move forward into flourishing, help us actually even honor God himself? So the traditions that now seem really strange to us, I think were rooted probably in things like zeal, probably in things like a strong desire to, to honor after God. And so maybe even your own heart and life you can look now, maybe five or 10 or 20 years later, and see where you've gotten off track or things have been either exaggerated or diminished, but I bet the things you're clinging to, the things that get you upset, the things you're anxious about, I bet you they have roots in things that were actually good to begin with, like, like safety, like, like being appreciated, like having relationships that matter like having somebody see you for what you do and how you contribute right? all those are are good things but when they become ultimate things things that you seek to protect with extra layers and laws and rules they become really distorted things and then Jesus comes in and offers hope and we're clinging to the ways we've built the system we're clinging to a way that we've we've held on to our Traditions, And here's what's really tricky. We live in a cultural moment where there's so much division, there's like multiple camps. But one main one is what's wrong with the world is that we've forgotten the way things used to be. We've got to get back to the way they were hundreds of years ago. That's one whole camp. Another camp says that's what got us in this problem. We've got to change everything and throw out all traditions. And so the new tradition is non-traditional. It's not to say we're the ones who know better. We can't rely on hundreds of years in our country, we're the ones who have exclusive information about what's going to make us flourish, what will keep us safe, what will actually make things better. It's the same question, though. What will actually fix what's broken? What will actually address the places of our needs and our longing? And I just want to invite you, as you look over the shoulder of this maybe obscure passage, if you can look over the shoulder of that with the same question you wake up with every single day of your life going, how do I get through today? How do I fix what's wrong with me? How do I fix this wrong in my relationships? How do I address the things in this world? I think you can find yourself in this text, right? It's a very specific text in a very specific situation in a very specific space and time. But I think the application is really broad. And it actually gives you permission to examine your own heart and say, "Is the things that I'm looking to to make myself okay, to make the world okay, to, to kind of fix what's broken is what I'm looking to going to be sufficient to actually rescue and redeem? So, so I think the question is a real similar question, even though the context is kind of obscure. I just want to own that. You didn't wake up this morning wondering about ritual cleanliness and what it meant to wash your hands. This is not like a mom telling their kids to wash their hands after they've defiled the van. It's not, it's not that. This is, this is a ceremonial cleansing, which would be interesting because Jesus would be seen as unclean from the context in chapter 14, verse 36, where he touched people to cleanse them and heal them. That would make him ceremonially unclean. So it's not just a random story. It's the next logical question. After the king of glory comes and shows his almighty God power to heal, here come these people saying, hey, you're, you're changing everything. What you're doing is going to flip our system upside down. Can we find a loophole? Can we find a way to challenge you? Can we, can we begin to ask some questions about the way you're living and what you're doing, what you're teaching, what you're showing that threatens to actually break our traditions? Because we believe holding on to these traditions is what will keep us safe. We believe when we've gone away from these traditions in the Old Testament, it's what's brought God's judgment. So there's like a zealous fear and concern and compassion that then has gotten distorted. I hope that makes sense to you. I want to give you credit. The stuff in your life that just feels like a mess and you find yourself yelling at your kids, you find yourself being selfish with your stuff, you find yourself like holding out on your spouse, you find yourself being jealous of your roommate, in those moments, normally that expression has several layers that get down into something that actually is probably good or at least understandable. At least it has something to do with, like, you don't want your kids to grow up to be monsters. Hey, that's a great value, right? And the way they're living is showing they're on the track to monsterhood. So you're like, we got to stop that. Or you just want to be understood, and people keep accusing you of things that you didn't do. And so you're you going to lash out in ways that are anxious and angry and overwhelmed. I think those outward expressions, they come from somewhere that Jesus actually wants to heal and to touch. and And I just... I think the scribes history shows us were like the most concerned the most zealous the most most diligent but that became the thing diligence became the thing like being seen as holy became more important than what it meant to be holy as it related to us connecting with God it, it's like wanting to look like you love Jesus is more important than actually loving Jesus here's a cheap shot with Instagram it's when you're with your kids and you want to be seen as somebody who has great moments with their kids. So you stop hanging out with your kids, you stage a photograph, you post it with a compelling caption, and then the whole time you're playing with your kids, you keep wondering who's liking this, who's, who's admiring this, who's modeling after this, who's seeing this. It's the same Kind of thing. It's a total cheap shot. I get it. I understand. But in that space, it's that idea you can understand. I'm actually not trying to be with my kids. I'm trying to show that I'm the kind of person who's with his kids. You're like, isn't that the same thing? It's actually quite a bit different. And you'll know it's different because of the effects of that. Okay, if that gets us into the text, I want us to see three things that Jesus does in this text to help us deal with the question of what is it that's like inside of us? What are we doing that we're trying to fix? He does three things. He, he exposes our drivers. He deepens our understanding of defilement, and he offers a better cleansing. He exposes our drivers. He deepens our understanding of defilement, and he offers us a better cleansing. So first, this deepen or exposes our drivers. Look at me in verse one. The Pharisees and scribes, they came to Jesus from Jerusalem. So they journeyed here with this question. Again, it's not a A why question for information. It's a trap. And they say to him, why do your disciples, why do they break the tradition of the elders? So that's one driver, the tradition of the elders. For they don't wash their hands when they eat. Again, this is not an Old Testament command. This would have been traditions and layers. This would have been them making application of laws and actually trying to think through like what would actually keep us safer? What would show us more righteous? What are the things we can add to what God has said that would actually put us in a space of his favor? The tradition of the elders is one driver, for they don't wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, hey, why do you break the commands of God for the sake of your traditions? So one is the actual traditions, and the other one is the actual commands of God. Why do you break the commands of God for the sake of your traditions? Traditions. You're being driven by the wrong thing, essentially, Jesus says. Your tradition has trumped your understanding of what God's word actually says. And here's his explanation. For the actual command, the Big Ten says, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles mother or father must surely die. Hear him elevating this. Hey, this is like a big deal. This honoring your mother and father, this is one of the Big Ten. This is a big deal. But you say in your tradition, Anyone who tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father or mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Okay, and you're like, I don't even know what that means. Here's what it means. There was a tradition in their day in the first century where without social security, it was your job as a child to take care of your parents. And so actually, when the scriptures talk about wealth and they tie it to children, those are all economic units for moms and dads to have their security and their retirement. That space children are supposed to honor their parents and take care of them in their old age. But they had begun to find a loophole. And the loophole was if you said all this stuff that I have, it's dedicated to the temple, then you don't have to give it to your parents. And the loophole, which is brilliant, is that means you get to keep using it. So you're dedicating it to the temple. What would it mean to dedicate your land to the temple? You can't actually do that in ways that actually have a meaningful application until you die. So while you're still alive, you get to benefit from all your stuff the whole time feeling really good about you, honoring God above your parents. Who wouldn't want to do that? Doesn't the Bible say that? Honor God above everything else. But their tradition had made a loophole where they would use that kind of language to actually avoid loving and caring for their mom and dad. They were choosing one command or one expression of a command or, or one application of a command to cancel out something that was really obvious and important. So they were taking their tra- traditions and in them finding actually excuses or escape clauses to not actually be obedient. They were saying, Surely God wouldn't want me to blank so they could do something else. Okay, just think for a second. Doesn't God want us to be loving? Think about all the misapplications of that that happen in our world. It doesn't God want us to be wise? Think of all the ways you withhold generosity in the name of wisdom. There's lots of applications or spaces where you have like a small command or an application of a command that you put at the top of the list to negate really, really clear commands. What Jesus is saying is there's a driver here where your tradition that actually has some benefits to you is what's at the top of the org chart, it's at the top of the decision tree. You're going from there first and you're negating clear commands of God. So here's the question, how do you know if what's driving you is good or not? How do you know if what's driving you is in line with God's heart or not? Let me give you four things from this text. The first one is this, is what's driving you actually benefiting you above other people? This whole clause that they had found in their traditions was a way for them to keep the resources and funds for themselves, call themselves righteous and holy while neglecting other people. And the scribes and the Pharisees are the ones who would benefit from this clause because those dedicated funds wouldn't get used by aging parents. They would be donated to the temple upon this person's death. So the rule, the regulation, the driver, the tradition actually benefited them rather than other people. A diagnostic of are we being driven by the wrong thing is to ask, is this thing actually centering around me? Is it actually paying me? Is it a space where I actually benefit from this thing? We have transactional structures all around us where we'll do something for somebody else to have them do something for us. And Jesus calls into question that driver. It's actually a driver of self. It's a driver that actually terminates on you, which is a dead-end street. So just ask about the stuff that you're doing, the things you're concerned about, the plans you have. Who benefits from them the most? Of course, save for retirement. Of course, do all that stuff. But at the core, when you're asking, what's the motivation behind this? If benefiting you is the motivation, you should be curious or cautious, or concerned about that driver. The the second one is this. Who who is being pleased, or who are you concerned about pleasing with what you're doing? And this is where we come in chapter 7, where he calls them hypocrites. He gives an assessment on this cause they've done, and he says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, Okay, that text is really clear, right? That you would say something but not actually care about it. You would admit to something out loud, but your heart is really far from that. And he's saying, hey, this same thing that you're doing is what was happening in Isaiah's day. I don't think Isaiah was prophesying about this specific moment. He was just saying, hey, this is a common human thing where people worship God with their lips, but their hearts are really far away. And you just have to ask, like, What's going on with that? Why would you do that? Why not just walk away altogether? Why not just just exit the room and stop pretending? Well, it actually pays and benefits in some ways for you to use and leverage God for your own resources, your own preferences, your own reputation. When you see an Old Testament quote, it's helpful sometimes to just flip back to that. So if you want to flip over with me to Isaiah 29, it's on page 590 if you're in a pew Bible. If you're on your phone, you can just click for a second. Isaiah 29, this is where the quote comes from. It's actually verse 13 is the quote that he's making here. The second thing I want to kind of put in front of you is a litmus test of what's driving. Not only does it pay for you, but, but asking who is it pleasing or who is it concerned about pleasing. If the quotes from verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 13, let's start in verse 11. He says this, And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, when men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I can't, because it's sealed. There's a loophole. Hey, what does the God's word say? Would you break this seal and read it? No, I can't, man. I'm told not to break seals. I can't actually read it. Okay? So then they're going to give it to somebody who can't read, and they say, read this, and he says, I can't even read. So there's these excuses to hearing what God's word actually says. He says, you're like these people who make excuses why you can't obey. Why you can't apply the truth of God's word that is so clear in scripture and you choose obscure traditions over those things, you're being driven by obscure traditions rather than God's word. You, you play these games, he's saying. All right, in verse 13, he has this quote, because the people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wondrous things with this people. There's still mercy with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. God's saying, hey, I'm going to get my way. I'm going to actually still move towards him in mercy. I'm still going to actually expose them. But what caught my attention was verses 15 and 16. He says this, are you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, you who play hide and go seek from God, you who think you can avoid him, whose deeds are in the dark and who say, who sees us, who knows us, Here we are, it's just our apartment. Here we are in the back room of our house. Here it is, just in my mind. Nobody actually knows. God doesn't actually see what I'm doing. You turn things upside down, he says. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say to its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. In this space, what we see in this Isaiah quote is a fundamental reversal of the creature and the creator saying, who is pleased is me. I give lip service out loud because it makes me look really good, but my heart actually has no intention to follow after God because I am worshiping me. And the creator is like a potter and I'm like the clay, but I'm going to reverse that. And the clay is going to say to the potter, you have no rights over me. Where are there places in your life where you're saying, God, you have no right over this. You have no right over my sexuality. You have no right over my relationships. You have no right over my forgiveness. You have no right over my money. You have no right over my past or my future or my present. You have no rights. This is up to me. Who are you pleasing? The driver in this text is a man-centered driver. And the traditions that sound good and maybe were rightly placed in zeal or desire for holiness have now been distorted. And the desire to be seen a certain way has moved to the foreground rather than actually living into that reality. They have a stronger desire to be seen as people that love God than actually loving God. And they've built systems and structures to make themselves look really impressive. And Jesus begins to cut through that and expose it because he loves them. He loves us too much to let us play games. I mean, you should read this passage. It's kind of ridiculous. And Jesus exposes that ridiculousness not just to shame us, but to invite us into a real lasting relationship that could actually bring about redemption. All right, so who who does it pay? Who is being pleased? The third diagnostic from this text is what is it that upsets you? What are you getting frustrated and feisty and upset about As Jesus challenges them, we see in verse 12, the disciples come to him and say, hey, don't you know the Pharisees are offended by what you're saying? I mean, you're challenging their way of life and living, and they're kind of offended by this Jesus, which gives us permission just to stop and ask, hey, what is it that like you're concerned about? Where do you get offended? Where's the anxiety and the anger leak out? Where are you saying it shouldn't be like this? Where, where are those places? Are they the clear commands of God that match his heart, or are they your traditions, your preferences, the things that you built, the things that were important to you? They get offended because the identity they've established for themselves, Jesus begins to question. Jesus begins to push on. Jesus begins to actually expose as a false identity. Hey, you are doing things to please other people, to please yourself in ways that actually will never bring about healing. It couldn't actually bring about cleansing, and Jesus exposes that, and they get offended. The difference between a gospel identity that's rooted in Jesus and any other identity is when you get challenged, what you do with that. If you get feisty, spicy, salty, anxious, angry, hangry, whatever it is, if you get, whatever you get, you know you're defending an identity that you have built, which is which actually can't hold. And you know it's fragile. So you build all these rules and regulations you have to perform perfectly or other people have to perform perfectly because it's so fragile for you. That's what's on the line. You get upset when that gets exposed. But if your identity is in what Christ has done for you, which is what a gospel identity is, the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done to die in our place, to forgive us of our sins. And Scripture says, say, if we trust in him, he forgives us of all of our unrighteousness and makes us whole. If that's my identity, then both the worst thing about me has already been said, that I was far from God, I was distant from God, I couldn't save myself, I needed rescue, and the rescue has already come. So the worst thing and the best thing has already been said. So when you say, hey, I'm not sure that's the way it's supposed to be, it's not a threat to an identity that's rooted in the gospel of Jesus, because the gospel of Jesus is already saying, I'm not trusting in me, I'm trusting in Christ. And the places where I'm out of alignment with that are not a threat to my identity. They are a sweet gift to me to get back into alignment, to live in light of this driver of the commands and kingdom of God rather than the traditions of man that I've built for myself. So a diagnostic would be like, what are you upset about? What what are you blowing Twitter up with? What what are you so f- like upset with you can't sleep at night? And what's the core of those things? Is it the honor of Jesus? Is it his name? Is it his glory or is it something else that you actually think you need or you're committed to that might actually not bring about redemption and wholeness, but if you lost it, it would threaten your identity, right? So we get upset, we get angry, we justify, we get dismissive when the things that we love are threatened if they're not the kingdom of God. And if they are the kingdom of God, then we move towards compassion, holiness, and zeal for the things of the Lord. So asking them, what is the things that are most offensive to me? What are the places where I'm upset? What upsets you would be a diagnostic? And the fourth one just real clearly would be what comes out of your mouth. Jesus says in verse 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder and adultery and sexual immorality. These are the big 10, theft and false witness and slander. These things come out of us and our traditions actually are built around like protecting our identity. They're built around our own comfort, our own pleasure, our own performance. And when we are defending those things in ways that murderous words come out and adulterous thoughts are exposed and places of self-soothing has the day and places where I'm dishonest on the corners and I don't tell the truth and I run somebody else down, those things that come out of me show even if I'm trying to defend something that I think is actually a core command of God, it might actually be a tradition of man if what comes out of my heart is something that's not in line with the commands of God. Do you see that? When we defend the things of God, the things that are not the things of God, it's a pretty good indicator that we're not actually defending the things of God. So when you are hateful, when, when you are um, belligerent, when you're slanderous, when you're uncharitable. When you're using that kind of posture, when what's coming out of your heart, is coming out of your mouth onto the internet or over your conversations or in your home or even just in your mind, you have a pretty good indicator that you're not in line with the kingdom of God. You're dealing with some sort of tradition that you're trying to defend. Okay, that feels important to me in this day and age where we are so divided and everything is just so loud all the time to just have an invitation to stop and go, hey, what, what am I actually trying to protect? What is it the thing that actually makes me upset? What is the, what is the deal that actually I'm so concerned about? What am, I, what am I praying over? And I hope there are things in your heart that are in line with the kingdom of God. We're, we're not an either-or thing. We're always a both-and sort of deal. So understanding this gives us a, an invitation just to stop, take a deep breath, examine our hearts, and then bring whatever's not in alignment with Jesus to Jesus and ask for him to heal it. So I don't know what's stirring inside of you. It's probably way too simplistic of what I'm saying. It doesn't fit your exact scenario. I totally get it, but don't miss an invitation to stop and say, are there traditions or anti-traditions that I'm holding on to that actually might keep me from hearing the good news of Jesus and applying that to my heart and life? He wants to expose the drivers. You have traditions, and then you have the commands of God. There's something about the human heart that is able to subvert the commands of God in the name of tradition. We're really crafty. Ah, we have a crafty evil one who loves to take half-truths and distort them in our heart. From the very, very beginning, what has driven us to dysfunction is an exaggeration or a diminishment of something that actually is true. What happened at the garden with the serpent with our first parents was a deceiving lie that was rooted in something that was actually kind of true. And in those spaces, that lie spreads. And the distortion of that gets confusing. And so you can stop and just go, hey, well, have I gotten distorted? Have I gotten confused? Are there things where I'm like really loud about? That actually they serve me and not other people. They, they show something about me, not, not the kingdom of God. They actually are upsetting because it's inconvenient for me, not so much about the holiness of God. You can begin to run through a list like that. You could pray through that. And again, if your identity is in Jesus, it's not a threat to your lovability. It's not a threat to your goodness, because Christ is your goodness. And now you get a chance to repent as an invitation to actually move towards wholeness and freedom rather than towards shame. Okay, that's the longest point, I promise. Drivers are exposed. And then what he does is he deepens our understanding of defilement. Starting in verse 10, he, he says, hey, you, you've just been thinking about the outside. Can I actually tell you it's like way worse than that? You're concerned about ritual washings on the outside, but it's actually stuff on the inside of your heart. So Jesus doesn't say, hey, in grace, don't worry about things that would defile you. It doesn't even matter. No, no. What he does is actually elevates it to show us actually their core issues inside of our hearts. Look in verse 10. And he called the people to him and he said to them, hear and understand it. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of their mouth, this is what defiles a person. The disciples come to him, and they say, hey, don't you know that the Pharisees are offended when you said that? And he answers, hey, don't worry. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted. This is now calling back to Matthew 13. Let them be alone. Uh, let, let them alone. They are blind guys, and if the blind lead the blind, they will fall into a pit. There's a ton there. We're just going to skip it. Verse 15. But Peter said to him, explain uh, they this parable to us. Are you just talking about like like bathroom stuff here, Jesus? Or what are you actually talking about? And he says to them, "Are uh, are you also still without understanding? Don't you see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and then it's expelled? It's like a graphic image. It doesn't have the power to actually change you. It can't actually defile you. It's just physical and it passes right through you. But instead of that, verse 18, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Outward things originate on the outside and they pass through us. Things that come out of our hearts, out of our mouth, originate from inside of us. This defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual morality, fa- theft, false witness and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anybody, he says. All right, Jesus actually takes our concerns and he elevates them. He, he deepens our understanding of defilement. You and I would be content to try to manage stuff on the outside. The scriptures are concerned about our hearts, and it's always been that way. We have passages in the Old Testament that the promise of the Messiah was that he was going to come and take our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. We don't first just operate on the outside. We, we are inside-out people, right? The kingdom of God moves from the heart outward. And actually what comes out of our heart, out of our mouths, then it exposes places where we need to be more in alignment with the kingdom of God. You are always inside out people, but we've been lied to to say if you can control what's on the outside, that'll fix what's on the inside. Whether that's a relationship or a, a thing that you have or don't have or a thing you can avoid or a thing you can do. If you just had that thing on the outside, it would fix what's going on on the inside. But Jesus says, no, 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 it's the other way around. The kingdom of God reverses that. The same way you put your traditions above the commands of God, and Jesus says, no, no, put the commands of God above your tradition. Ask, is what I'm doing in line with the commands, not is the commands of God consistent with what I want to do? That would be the wrong order, and this would also be the wrong order. It's actually from the inside, and things come out of us that expose what's happening inside us. So the defilement is not something that you can just wash away with water and some sort of ritual cleansing. Like, what's the sacrifice for these things? There's no provision in the Old Testament. There's no, like, if you murder somebody, then take three pigeons and a goat. And there's no sacrifice like that. There's no way to cleanse that. We needed something much, much, much deeper. So by Jesus deepening our understanding of defilement, it brings us to this third point where we get a chance to ask, is there a better cleansing? If the traditions can't keep us whole and protected and pure, if my self-pleasing is actually an end road, it's a terminate road, it actually dead ends on itself and it doesn't have the power to rescue me, it's too fragile of a thing, then is there a deeper kind of cleansing? And of course, the Gospel of Matthew is aimed at telling us that Jesus came into our world to be a better sacrifice. Hebrews 9 and 10 are so compelling. The blood of bulls and goats, the washings, the offerings, none of that could ever actually cleanse us They were all foreshadowing to one great sacrifice that would come, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' little excursion here with these religious leaders, as they're wrestling with what is it that makes us right, he exposes, hey, there's nothing you could do to make yourself right. I mean, you couldn't manufacture enough traditions to fix yourself. It's much, much, much deeper than that. I think if you're in the crowd that day, you hear Jesus' words and you just feel undone. Because if there's enough rules and laws and regulations, then maybe you could go about doing those, which is exactly what the Pharisees and scribes had given their life to. They're going to follow every rule to the T and therefore prove themselves lovable. But what do you do about these things? What do you do about the stuff inside of us? What do you do about the stuff that nobody actually sees that we try to hide from God from Isaiah 29? he actually fully exposes and sees and understands. It puts us in a place where we hear the good news of the gospel as good news to say there is no striving, there's no level of obedience, there's no kind of auxiliary holiness, there's no traditions you could keep, there's no outward cleansing that would ever actually make you whole. That devastates us and then positions us to receive the best news ever that Jesus came in our place, he died in such a way that we actually now can be forgiven and free as we trust his sacrifice to be the thing that cleanses us and makes us whole. So then you're free to examine your heart. You're free to repent of things that actually have gotten misguided. And, and you're called to trust Jesus as the one who is your only hope. Or you look at God's word and it shapes you and you look at the word of God as the one who took on flesh and came into our world. What at first is kind of an obscure passage I think is really relevant to us, especially when you ask the questions of what am I trying to do to make myself okay? Here's the invitation this morning. Look to Jesus. And not just to kind of be okay. Look to Jesus for cleansing. Look to Jesus to be the one who deals with your defilement. Look to Jesus for the one who actually gives you a new heart where the things that come out of your heart hurt yourself and other people. He died in your place to make a way for you to be forgiven and free. That's the good news of Christianity. It's the good news of this text, and it's what Jesus came to offer to us. As you sit here in the room, I imagine there's lots of things going on in your heart, depending on where you're at. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is, I think, maybe confronting. Maybe it's even offensive. You're like, heck no, man, I'm going to keep trying. I've done so much. You don't know anything about me, Pastor. You don't know how good I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've accomplished. You don't know how, how much resources I have inside of me. And maybe you're resisting the idea here. Would you just bring that resistance to Jesus and ask for his help? You're in the room asking some kind of questions about how God fits into your life. So would you just bring that resistance to him? There's some prayers in the back of the bulletin that would give you some examples of prayers that you could pray that would just kind of give language for how do I bring my heart to God if I'm not yet ready to trust him as the one who cleanses me from being all defiled? And then for Christians in the room, I would guess there's a couple of things going on in your heart. One is deep gratitude and joy. To hear the good news again of what Christ has done, right? Let that wash over you. Let it fill your lungs. Let it nourish you. Let it encourage your heart that Christ has already accomplished everything you needed him to do so you could be forgiven and set free. And then you get a chance from that space to look at your life in your heart and go, where have I given myself to other drivers? Where is there more things that are competing inside my soul? And you could use this time to both trust Jesus and repent, to turn away. Because repentance for us is not shame. It's not rubbing our faces in it. It's a pathway to freedom. Because to look to other things than Jesus actually isn't liberation. It's bondage. To try to he- deal with this cleansing some other way, to try to justify yourself some other way, is what you do to actually hurt other people so you get a chance To end like a repentant heart, look at your life, examine what's going on, ask for Christ to forgive and heal you and set you free from the power of those things because of what he's done on the cross. So Christian and non-Christian, I want to ask you to engage in this season. We're going to now take communion. It's a symbol of how Christ actually came to cleanse us. His broken body on the cross is represented in the bread and his blood shed for us is represented in the cup and we get a chance to bring our hearts to God and ask for him to actually touch us remind us, nourish us. So we tear a piece of the bread off and we dip it in the cup and the person will say, this is the body of Jesus broken for you. This is his blood shed for your life. If you're ready to trust him, then come and take communion. If you're not trusting him, there's zero pressure to stay in your seat. But would you earnestly ask God, like if this is true, to stir your heart in such a way that you can interact with him, he answers your questions and you get to move towards him. Would you ask God to move your heart towards him even if you're not yet ready to fully trust him. And for those who are trusting him, I would invite you to take communion. There's gluten free over here to my right, your left, there's also some individual little packets that you can take if that's more comfortable. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take communion. Jesus, thank you for what you did to heal us, to rescue us, to address what's inside of our soul. Thanks for the ways you came to actually do something about what was defiling us. You didn't make us pay it on our own, you made a way of escape. We receive now with joy the promise that what you've done on the cross is enough for us. And then would you grant the room like enough capacity to be honest with you where we're struggling to trust that, to believe that, whether it's unbelief altogether or simply places where we need to repent. Would you help us? I've asked in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, come when you're ready.